Great, great. Um, before we even get into the message this morning, I just I want to take a minute and be just real with you guys for a second. So if I could get your undivided attention. Uh, 13 years ago when we planted Anthem, actually uh, it's 13 years in, in 13 days. It'll be, I think, 13 years since we planted this church. And um, when we planted the church, one of the things that was really important to me from the beginning was that we never talk about money. <laughs> and I really felt like going into it, it was like, People don't like that, you know? They, they always feel like the accusation against churches is that they're always after money. And so for 13 years, we've really never talked about it. And what's interesting is that in 13 years, we've never had a season in 13 years where we haven't like gone above and beyond budget every single year as a church. And so every time we sit down for budget season with our stewards and our budget team who looks ahead for the next year, it's always like, Man, look at, we, we've always had like this excess of money to figure out what we want to do the next year. And um, anyway, the last few weeks as we've been looking at the budget for this year, we're like way behind. And, uh, and the conversation has been like with our stewards and our elders, just like, wow, you know, we've never been in this season before. And this last week I was talking to the staff and one of the staff said to me like, you always talk about being trans wanting to be transparent and authentic. Like, why don't you be transparent and authentic with the reality of like what's going on with our finances? Um, just to kind of bear our hearts and be real with you guys. And so um, this morning, this is not uh, at all like an opportunity for me to try to twist your arms to get you to give, um, but an opportunity to come before our church and say like, we're behind for the year. I think it's probably a sign of the economy and everything that's going on and people are feeling the pinch for sure. But as a church, like, can you just keep that in your prayers? Like, what, what does that look like for us moving forward? Maybe there's some of you that have never given. I mean, I will tell you, 11 of Jesus's parables in the New Testament are about money. Like, he cares a lot about what we do with our money, not how much you give, but what you give in relationship to, to what you've been given. And so um, it's important for us. Like my wife and I give consistently to the church. We believe part of being connected here as um, a church family and community is that we want to be contributors to this thing that we are even recipients of a paycheck from, like which we just can't believe we even um, are compensated to do anything that we do with regards to ministry. It's really just... Uh, a privilege. But I just wanted to share that with you guys this morning and say, like, pray for us. Like, pray for our church. Pray pray that, who knows, like, that the Lord would turn it around, or maybe, maybe he won't. But as a church body, at least we can keep this before us and be prayerfully considering how maybe you might make a contribution at the end of the year, or whatever, however the Lord would lead you. But just, if you're new to this church, I'm not talking to you. Like, <laughs> You're a guest. I'm really glad you're here this morning. We don't talk about money ever. Most of you probably don't even know that red box exists in the back. We never even mention giving off our web. Like, we don't ever talk about it. And so, like, this morning is just like, nice. I appreciate that. This is a new slide. Uh, anyway. That, that's all I'm going to say this morning is like, let's, as a church body, I just want to be 
just transparent with you guys and let you know kind of what we're feeling as a church and where we're at. We've seen the needs rise and the church grow and the giving go down, which is just such an interesting uh, season to be in. So, and yeah, on that note, we're going to talk about hope this morning. So let me pray and get us into this. Jesus, we're so hopeful for all the funds. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for just the privilege it is to gather as your church. God, I just do not take it lightly every week when I come together and sing with your church and open up your word and see the faces in this room. I'm thankful for every person that's here this morning. I pray, Jesus, as we get into your word this morning, would you challenge us? Would you equip us? Um, God, there's some in this room, even as we talk about hope this morning, that literally entered this building feeling more hopeless now than they've ever felt before in their lives. I pray, Jesus, that by your spirit, you'd meet them in this place this morning. God, that you would give us a hope, not grounded in our circumstances or anything that we experience here on this earth that has nothing to do with the economy, but a hope that is grounded in heaven, that sits with Jesus, a hope that's founded in you, God, a hope that is everlasting. And I pray this morning we could experience that, Jesus. And so we thank you for this time, and we devote this time to you. We pray that you'd use it, Lord, to build us up in your name. Amen. All right. So can we take a deep breath? Sorry, I had to talk about money. I hate it. Um, this morning, we're, we're going to jump in and we're going to talk about Advent for the next couple weeks. And normally, Advent, you know, is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, but we've been in the book of Nehemiah and just kind of charging our way through that and then just wanted to take a break for the next couple weeks and talk about Advent, um, specifically two um, specific uh, words, um, characteristics of, of Advent. One uh, this morning we'll talk about hope, and next week we'll talk about peace. But I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like every year as we approach the Christmas season that Christmas lights and decorations start coming out a little bit earlier, don't they? And I continue to hear people talk more and more about how it's like, oh, I think November 1st is a good time to get the tree up and to get, get, get the lights up on the house. And it seems like it just kind of keeps getting extended every single year. There was an article that I read two years ago, like in the height of COVID, from a secular news source that I will not name. Um, during COVID, it was encouraging people to put up their lights in, in March, um, put up their Christmas lights in March. And the article literally makes a statement. Um, the, a person in the article says, the idea is that twinkling colorful lights will lift spirits during dark times, is what the article states. And it was all about like why we should put our lights up in March. And I thought it was interesting, again, to read from this particular um, news source that, that they reference this lifting spirits during dark times. Uh, a couple years ago, I got more and more, uh, or over the last couple years, I've gotten more and more into decorating. And my, my wife always kind of accused me of being uh, kind of a Scrooge. Uh, but like, I never really got into the decorating aspect of Christmas. And over the last couple of years, there's been part of me that's just gotten more and more into it. And so Jonah and I will go and buy like one inflatable every year and continue to add to the inflatables in our yard. One day I will be that person, you know, you'll drive by and be like, what, that dude's got a problem. It's like, yeah, um, wanna tour my house, you know, my, my inflatable yard. But um, I've continued to get like progressively more and more into decorating. 
And it was like something switched in me. Uh, Heather had always been into Christmas decorating and loves it and just watching like our family come to life as they begin to decorate the house and put out the, the tree and the lights and these things, it begins to actually kind of lift your spirits. You get excited about what's ahead. And, and I feel like I would often get more and more excited about watching Heather and the kids get excited than I would be excited myself about what it is that we were partaking in. But again, in the last couple of years, it's progressively changed and it's fun to watch as you get like Christmas decorations up and you get lights up and your tree up and everything and the houses around you get lit up because in some sense it does do something to lift our spirits. There's something about it that makes this place feel a little bit more magical when you drive around Coeur d'Alene and you see the lights and there's something about the spirit of it all. But the reality is, is that we as humans, we need something to look forward to. That's how we're wired. We're wired to be a people that, look, that need something to look forward to. When we decorate for Christmas, we're preparing for a day when we celebrate the, the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But the decorations and, and the lights, they, they get us excited in this waiting time until we actually partake in Christmas, the, this one day. But we spend two months leading up to it preparing for this. We know that the decorations in and of themselves are not Christmas. They're just like these anticipatory pieces that prepare us for what's actually to come. And isn't it interesting that to, to, to have something to look forward to in life? Like, isn't that just something that's really neat? How many of you are people that just love to have something planned that you can look forward to? That it just kind of like, it wells up inside of you while you're waiting for this moment to occur, whether that be a vacation you've planned or something you've been saving to do or whatever it is. There's something about having something to look forward to. It gives us hope. And hope in and of itself gives us a reason to keep going because we're anticipating what lies ahead regardless of how difficult the times are as we work up to that thing. Today we're, we're jumping into um, one of two weeks of an Advent study. And again, historically Advent is four Sundays and we're just gonna deal with two. But I think this reminder of Advent is really good for us. It's an awesome opportunity as a church to stop for a second and to realize what it is we're anticipating and what it is that we're waiting for. It sort of prepares us for what it is that's to come. Advent's the season when the church looks back to Christ's first arrival in Bethlehem as a baby. And in the same token, like intention with, we look ahead and we look ahead to his second and his final arrival at the end of days. Like, so we sit in this in-between period and his advent, we celebrate what was done in his birth and then in his life and his death and resurrection, but we look ahead with a ton of anticipation as a church with this promise that he will come back. And, and we have a lot of hope tethered to that because everything in this life seems to let us down. But Jesus won't. There's two words that we're going to talk about over the next two, week, two weeks. And um, it seems to me like every year that I've pastored since we started this church and we've talked through Advent of some sort, it seems like these themes for Advent become more and more relevant in our times because I don't know about you, but it just seems like the times get darker. It just seems like things are progressively getting heavier. And I don't know about you, but I, I feel like in the last month, 
I've maybe walked through the most heaviest circumstances with a lot of people than any month prior this year. It seems like a heavy season, and we're in this waiting time. And even in this heavy season, we can find ourselves grounded in hope. Today we'll be looking at hope. Um, this word advent, in and of itself, it means arrival. It comes from this Latin word adventus, which means coming. It means, again, arrival. And so at Jesus' first arrival, he was proclaimed as the Savior. In Luke 2, it says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. But in Jesus' second coming, Jesus will actually come back as a judge, and he will begin to gather all of those, as Paul says, who have longed for his appearing. What a cool phrase. He will gather all of those that have longed for his appearing. And so, again, we stand in this in-between season between two arrivals, like his birth and his second coming. But the circumstances of our lives and the times that we're living in, they seem to be changing every single day. Everything is changing every day. But Advent is this invitation for us to step back from our daily lives and to actually take a moment to see the bigger picture of God's great salvation, what that actually means for you and I, that God has actually given us reason to hope. Amen? He's given us reason to hope. But our hope is not dependent on a feeling much like the decorations for Christmas, our hope is actually in a person, in the personhood of Jesus Christ. So Christmas lights, they, they communicate something to us, right? That Christmas is coming. All the stuff of, that Christmas can create, it can kind of create in us this feeling of hope. And we need the feelings. Like there's something about feeling hopeful. But today, I actually want us to think about the reality of hope. Not just the warm, fuzzy feelings of hope, but the reality of hope. Biblical hope is a confident trust that God will keep his promises, that he will do what he said he would do. And so today I want us to see sort of three dimensions of hope in a specific passage of scripture. And I want to do this by looking at a couple really obscure characters in the Bible that we don't talk a ton about, Simeon and Anna, uh, as seen towards the end of Luke chapter 2. And I want to look at, again, three dimensions of hope. I want to look at the act of hoping. I want to talk about the, the reason for our hope. And I want to talk about the object of our hope. So if you read with me Luke 2, we're going to read verses 22 through 38. Are you guys with me? Are you good? Are you sleeping? Are you hopeful for what's about to take place this morning? <laughs> All right. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, baby Jesus, right? 8.2 ounce, baby Jesus. Um, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. His name actually means to hear. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought, him, brought in the child, Jesus, 
um, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, people Israel, Gentiles, the non-Jews. Verse 33, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. I mean, think about the weight of that statement. And for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Verse 36, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. What an amazing couple people that we do not talk very much about. So who is Simeon who's Anna? Simeon, he's old, right? He's close to death because we read that it says, uh, he says at one point that he can depart in peace because his eyes had seen the Lord's salvation. Like he can die in peace because he's seen what the Lord had promised him to see. Luke doesn't tell us much about Simeon or about his position or about even his occupation, but Simeon viewed himself as a servant to God. And, and like a servant, Simeon thinks of himself as totally responsible to, totally dependent to God, like totally given to the Lord. We're told even less about Anna, right? Her name actually means grace or favor. This woman who was this prophetess was also very old. She was only married for seven years. Then she's widowed. And at this point, she's 84 years old. She hasn't left the temple in probably 60 years and has been worshiping, fasting, and praying day and night, waiting for the Messiah. What an amazing woman. First dimension of hope I want to look at this morning, the act of hoping. So what does the act of hoping look like for Simeon and Anna's, in Simeon and Anna's lives? The scripture says that they're waiting. In the Hebrew language, the word hope means to wait. And so the, the root in Hebrew of wait is stretched string is what it means, which is really interesting when you think about it. If you think of the tension like on a string of a guitar that's waiting for somebody to come along and to create music with it, that's sort of what it's referring to, right? Think about the potential for music that's bound up in an instrument that's waiting to be played. How cool is that? But when I think about the, the connotation of waiting in our culture, it often seems boring. We talk about waiting, it's just like, we live in a day and age when that just doesn't fly. We don't wanna wait for anything. We want everything instantaneously right now. Like I'm waiting for my movie to load. How many of you guys just hate it when you have to sit and watch something spin? It's like, oh, good Lord, am I on AOL dial-up? You know, like. Come on now, already, get this thing moving. 
I'm waiting to finish school. I'm waiting to start my career. I'm waiting till the day that I finally like have money in my bank account. I'm waiting to find a spouse. I'm thinking about all the things in life that when we talk about waiting, we actually give it a negative connotation. Like we do not like to wait. But think about the image of a groom waiting for his bride for a moment. I've been part of many weddings over the years. I can't remember one wedding where the groom was up front, like checking his watch and sighing and rolling his eyes. Oh, good Lord, get her down here already. You know what I mean? Like, let's get this show on the road. Every groom I've ever seen in a wedding is waiting with anticipation to see his bride. There's something about that moment as you're sitting there, even as a pastor officiating a wedding, watching the groom because he hasn't seen her and seeing the look in his eyes and on his face as she enters the room. It's amazing. He's been waiting for this moment. Like, he might be nervous, jittery, but he's smiling. Like, one of those smiles where your face just hurts because you're smiling so hard. And so Simeon, he waits, and, and Simeon prays, and Simeon watches, and Simeon looks forward to God's promises while living this devoted and righteous life, is what it says of this man. And Anna, she worships and fasts and prays for 60 years, 60 years she devotes herself to this, waiting for the redemption of Israel that would come through the Messiah, is what it says. So Simeon and Anna, they're, they're, they were devoted. They were living righteously. Like live, living a righteous life meant that Simeon treated people rightly, right? He, he led this devoted life. Devout means that he was careful to fulfill his religious duties is what the definition means. He practiced his faith daily. Peter tells the church to live in the same way as we wait for this second advent. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, it says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Like this passage says that there will be a time when the world will cease to exist as it is now. Like it will not exist. But God's gonna create this new heaven and God's gonna create this new earth. And while you wait for that time, what kind of people does he say that we should be? Holy and godly as we wait. How amazing is that? Like Simeon and Anna, holy and godly as we wait. We can read those words holy and godly and devout and we can think to ourselves boring, that just seems like you're gonna miss out on all the fun on this earth. Holy and devout and boring? Like, I don't wanna be known as that. But maybe this morning we need to reframe that thought a little bit. We are living devoted to a God who is powerful. A God who has endless joy, who is endless joy. A God who has perfect knowledge. A God who is completely just. None of those things sound boring to me, does it to you? <laughs> sound pretty amazing, actually. And if you read through the Proverbs, one of the themes that you're gonna see is that life generally goes better when you walk God's way, doesn't it? Life is better, generally better for you if you continue to pursue him and follow his lead. And these, these Proverbs, as you read through them, they are promises that all will go well for you 
but they're sort of these general principles for how life works. Like as we wait, we can follow these principles, so to speak. Will we be thankful in all circumstances or will we be complainers? That's a decision you get to make. I understand that we're longing for something better, that we're longing for, for something better that will come, but will complaining make the waiting time go any faster for us? Probably not. I generally get really frustrated when it gets cold outside. I hate the cold. You can ask my wife. I despise the cold. I hate walking outside into the cold and getting into a cold car. I hate that initial shock that you get when you get out in the cold and you're just like, ugh, I just like wanna hit something. You know what I mean? Like, ugh, so frustrating. Any of you that do cold ice baths, I'm like, you have a demon. You know, like that's, <laughs> like nothing feels more terrible than getting into shocking cold weather or water for me. But I can become a grouch. And the stupid question to ask myself, as dumb as this sounds, in the middle of winter when I hate the snow and the cold, is does winter go by any faster when I just sit and complain and get grouchy? No, it doesn't, actually. So what's a better way for me to live this life in this cold season as I await the glorious days of summer that will come, right? To make the most of every single day to make the most of every single day. Will we live distracted or will we live devoted to God? That's a choice you will make in your life. Is filling my life with as much pleasure as possible my primary goal while I wait on this earth? Is that the goal? No. I'm not saying that we avoid pleasure. Every good thing comes from God. Pleasure isn't the enemy. But my purpose in life is not my pleasure. My purpose in life is to live holy and devoted to the Lord. But while we wait, church, what will we prioritize? The second dimension of hope is the reason for hope. What were Simeon and Anna's reasons for hope, the hope that they had? For Simeon, God had made a personal promise to him, right? The promise was, Simeon, you will not die before you see the Messiah. That's the promise he had. God's specific promise to Simeon fits within this larger promise to the nation of Israel. The same thing. Simeon is, Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. This, the consolation of Israel is another term that means waiting for the Messiah is what he's saying. Messiah is this word that means anointed one, like a king was anointed or, or designated as the chosen one to lead a nation. David was anointed as a king and ruled as Israel's most prosperous king, right? God made a promise to David. The promise was that there will be a king who would come from the line of David who would sit on David's throne forever. That king is the anointed one or the Messiah, King David dies, the, the kingdom of Israel is then divided and eventually the people go into exile and after exile, some return back to Jerusalem, begin rebuilding the city in, in preparation for this coming, coming king, for the, in preparation for this Messiah. It's sort of the time frame we find ourselves in as we're talking through the book of Nehemiah as they're rebuilding. But the people wait 400 years between what we call the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament in the book of Matthew. So over that period of time, slowly, 
this prophetic hope for a Messiah existed, that, that he would come and he would save them. But you have to understand that in that 400 years of waiting, there was this pessimistic hope that existed in the people. In the people's eyes, it was like, it's been so long. Like maybe God's actually forgotten about us. Maybe God won't even keep his promise. Imagine waiting for generation after generation for the Messiah to come. The, the, the waiting probably got more boring and more stagnant the longer that it took, don't you think? But in God's perfect timing, Jesus comes and he claims to be the Messiah. And Jesus is talking with this woman in John chapter four. Um, she knows of this messianic hope and she says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I the one who is speaking to you, I'm he. Like, I am the Messiah. And the Messiah has been promised, but, but, but the people and Simeon and Anna have been waiting a really long time for him to actually come. Like, why would Simeon and Anna think that God would even keep his promise? Well, they're devoted and they're careful to keep coming to the temple every single day. They pray and fast and worship in the waiting time. And here's an interesting observation that I was thinking about as I was reading through this, is that their daily practices in the waiting time, I think actually helps Simeon and Anna to remember the faithfulness of God. There's something about those daily practices. I mean, for some of you that are just like, I don't have any hope, or will God actually do what he wants, or what is his hope for me? Well, I would ask you, in the waiting time, what does it look like to devote yourself to him? to continue to show up, to pray, to fast, to worship, to gather with his people, to read his word. Like Simeon knows the story of the Old Testament, that God promised deliverance from Egypt, and that it came, that God promised to provide in the desert, and then they had water, and they had food that God promised this land to live in and that the walls of Jericho fell. And Simeon has this reason to hope because Simeon remembers that God is faithful and that God has always kept his promises. Sometimes he just needs to, needed to look back and be reminded that he did what he said he was gonna do. And no matter how long he has to wait, he'll continue to devote himself to God and wait for the promises to be fulfilled, hopefully in his lifetime. Some of us, we live this life. Like, this is why we love to put dates on Jesus' return. I think Jesus is coming back in 2025. Well, I can get serious about God for three years. <laughs> the reality is he may not come back in your lifetime. Will you get serious about him and devote your life to him regardless of if you see or around alive? when that time comes. How will you devote yourself to him now? You and I, we, we actually do have a reason to hope. And we have this reason to hope because God kept his promise to Israel. He did what he said. And he's faithful and he will still continue to keep his promises to you and I. Second Peter 3, right before the last passage that I read, um, verses eight through 10 says this. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, 
that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Listen to some of these promises. I'll never leave you. He says, I will never forsake you. That I will send the Holy Spirit and he will be a comforter and a guide for you. That I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Don't let your heart be troubled. Like if I go, I will come again. These are promises that he's given us. Simeon and Anna have the same reason to hope. Like we have the same reasons to hope. The last dimension of hope that I want to share is the object of our hope. The object of Simeon's hope was who? In what? Jesus. The object, the focus was the Messiah. Scripture says that he took him. Listen, it's so crazy. It says that he took him baby Jesus, up in his arms. Wrap your brain around that for a second. The Messiah that you've been waiting for, that you've devoted your years to, you now hold in your arms. (laughs) This baby. And Simeon picks up an actual person who's the hope for our salvation, who is the Messiah. Might I remind you that the celebration of Jesus' first arrival was not a fairy tale. It's not fake. And it's so easy to get to the season in Christendom where we look at Christmas time and we think to ourselves, it's a book that I read, it's a story that I hear, and I'm gonna partake in it for a season and then I'm gonna file it away until next year when we pull the books back out and we talk about Jesus again and we go through the motions and repeat the cycle over and over again. But might I remind us that what we are anticipating and what we are celebrating in Christmas is not fictitious it's real it's real the hope for salvation was Jesus Christmas is this remembrance that God became man that God actually took on flesh that God entered into space and time and he experienced human existence what a trip that he experienced joy and pain and laughter and food and sleep and prayer and walking and playing all of it and so when Simeon picks up this 40 day old baby he doesn't say oh man you know this baby is just this Sentimental reminder of God's love and hope for a better world. What Simeon does is go, this actually is the hope for the world. Like salvation actually has come in this baby. He says in verses 30 to 32, my eyes have seen your salvation. That that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And so Simeon in this, he he alludes to several passages from Isaiah when he praises Jesus. He he alludes to Isaiah 49, six, which says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Might I add, Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus shows up. 
Isaiah 52.10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see, shall see the salvation of our God. Like he, he bared his arm saying, God showed his strength, that, that salvation is only something that God can accomplish for us. Isaiah 9.2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Like, although Jesus is the Messiah promised to come to the nation of Israel, he's the hope for all nations, not just Israel, for all of us. Jesus is this light in the darkness. Darkness in and of itself is the absence of light. And we know intuitively that the world is not as it should be, don't we? Something's very broken. If you don't sense that, something's very off in you. <laughs> but the world is broken. I've sat with so many people that are sick and dying, and I sit there with them often, thinking to myself, this is not right. Like, this just doesn't seem right. Death, pain, sorrow, separate, like, this does not seem right. This is not the world that we were meant to live in, and I get frustrated, like, God, what's your plan? God, do something about this. But the reality is that he has done something about it, hasn't he? He's done it. Like, he actually did keep his promise. He gave us his son. And Simeon then makes this prophecy in this passage, and he says that Jesus is going to cause a rising and a falling in Israel. That, that basically, those who take pride in their own spiritual heritage or their own achievements, those that place their salvation in their own doing and think that they can make a better life for themselves, there will be no place for them. They'll fall. But those who throw themselves on God's mercy, they'll rise. And then there's this little blurb. There's this kind of personal message to Mary in verse 34. It says, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What's Simeon talking about? He's talking about Jesus, like going to the cross. Can you imagine like the anguish that Mary felt at the cross watching her son be hung, pierced, and die? She probably asked the same questions that we do. God, what in the heck is your plan? This does not seem right. Like how could this happen? And then Simeon gives Mary the, this glimpse of her future anguish. <laughs> and Jesus gives his disciples an even more full picture of this in Luke 9. He says, the son of man, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Like Jesus went to a literal cross and died. On that cross, Jesus pays the penalty for our sins. When we trust in Christ's work on our behalf rather than our own efforts or anything that we can do to earn it, God forgives us. He accepts us on the merit of Christ's work on the cross, nothing that we did to deserve it or earn it. God places his Holy Spirit in us. We no longer live under the shadow of death anymore because Jesus has defeated death through his resurrection. And the resurrection in and of itself gives us this confident hope that Jesus actually will come again. He's not down for the count. He's not TKO. Where's he at? 
He's seated up at the right hand of the Father in heaven. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of his great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We have this present hope, a living hope, through Jesus' resurrection. We have a future hope that because Christ is risen, Christ actually will come back again, and Jesus is the object of our hope. Jesus is the object of my hope. I have hope even when I feel sorrow. Like Heather and I have probably experienced more sorrow and loss in the past three years of our lives than maybe any other time in our adult lives. It has felt like a lot at times. And we often talk about how suffering and sorrow is disorienting. Anybody else ever feel that? Like it's hard to make sense of. It's hard to understand it. But Satan's hope is that in suffering, you will abandon God. That you'll just ditch him. Or, or, or you'll at least relegate God to some sort of sentimental idea, right? A, a thought that's really nice at Christmas time and at Easter and at Thanksgiving, but it's just not real. It's just something that makes me feel better a couple times a year. Like, my personality hates to feel sad. I hate it. But the reality is that feeling sad does not mean that I do not have hope. It means I feel sad. It means that I love and miss like seasons of life and people that I shared those seasons of life with. It means that I'm grieving the loss of something, but I have a choice. Like I don't act on hope by putting on a happy face. The sorrow is real, but I, I, I don't mourn as one that does not have hope, as the scriptures say. Jesus came in the flesh. The, the world is not all there is. But it's a good world that God actually made. And we are going to live in this world with a hope and a confident trust in God while we exist on this planet. I remember sitting with somebody, or ask the worship team to come up, but I remember sitting with somebody who was dying years ago. And uh, th this man kept telling me, like, I'm at peace. I'm at peace. And he's literally dying. I'm at peace. And the reality was this man really wanted to get better. Like he fought. He battled the sickness, right? He did physical therapy. He went to the appointments he, he was supposed to. He took the medications he should. He did everything he could to try to stay alive. But the reality is that his life eventually ended. This man literally died as he lived with hope. Is that not so awesome? While he's saying like, I have peace. He's literally dying. And I remember tripping out, sitting there like, this seems so ironic to me. You have peace and you have hope, but you're about to lose your life. And you're acting, you're, you're doing everything you should to try to maintain it or try to get better, but the reality is that your body continues to wither away and he continued to stay hopeful. And, and his hope now, this day, is realized because Jesus was the object of his hope, wasn't he? If you've looked to Jesus for salvation, then you have hope. But today, you may not have feelings of hope. You may really be struggling to feel hopeful right now, but I want to remind you 
that you have hope and that God has not abandoned you, whether or not you feel it. I want to leave you with one last challenge, and then we're going to worship. As we enter into the season, it's often easy for us to think about how we partake in hope in the advent, in the waiting. But my challenge for you is that in the season, will you share the hope with others? Instead of just being convinced that it's something that you should receive, is it something that you will share? Because the Bible says we always should be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks. That we should be able to give a reason for the hope that we have. And many people right now do not have hope. They're either distracted or they're in despair. Most people I come into contact with are struggling. And they make comments to me like, it feels so heavy right now. The reality is that they lack hope. And yet we have the hope that they need. We've got it. God's not slow in keeping his promises as some count slowness, as the scriptures say. He's patient, not wanting that any would perish, but that all would actually come to repentance. In that same article that I read about the Christmas lights that I mentioned earlier, this man put up his lights early in March, and he said this. He said, times are dark, and there's light to be spread. Now more than ever is the time to be looking outside of yourself, is how he ended the article. And he's right, isn't he? Times are dark. You have a hope within you, a light to be shown. Now more than ever is a time for you to look outside of yourself and realize where that hope comes from and what hope you're actually sharing with people because our world wants to say, I'm hopeful when I see the Christmas lights on. And we want to say, oh, no, 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 no. The Christmas lights are the signs of waiting. <laughs> We're anticipating something way better that's to come. Like, let me tell you about the real hope that won't end December 31st when you go back into the new year. In Jesus, look outside yourself. Jesus is the hope. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for the hope that was offered in you. I thank you even now, Lord, as I think of specific circumstances in my life that the enemy could really use to convince me that I have no hope, that things are hopeless. And I know there's many in this room that feel that right now. The circumstances in their life, the things swirling around them, the things in their families with their friends, there are circumstances convincing them that they are hopeless. Jesus, in this waiting time, I really do pray that we be hope-filled. We may not feel hope, but I pray we'd be reminded that we have it. I pray, Jesus, that you would fill us with your hope this morning. I pray for those in this room that are just at the end of their rope, don't know where to turn, that you would come, Holy Spirit. You would provide them your peace and your joy, your hope. Reveal yourself to them this morning. Make yourself known that they would know, Jesus, that they can't attach themselves to the things in this world, in this life, in an effort to try to grasp onto something that would provide a long-lasting hope. But they can find that hope in you. And I pray as we 
tread through this Advent season, God, that we would continue to stay grounded to the hope in you and be reminded on a daily basis of what it looks like to be devout and righteous, to literally live in this waiting time with the expectation that you will come. And I pray your blessing upon your church. Would we come alive during this season? Would we be a people that would not back down to sharing the hope of the world that we've been given with other people? May we be a people that would want to allow our lights to shine, people that would talk to others about it, that would grieve with others, pray with others, sit with others in really heavy seasons while reminding them of the hope that they actually could have found in Jesus that surpasses all life's circumstances. And I pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Let's worship.